You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 26, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Vaccinations are finally reaching enough people in some parts of the world to permit some sort of return to normalcy, while other parts of the world, such as India and Brazil, continue to face serious infection rates and deaths from the COVID-19 virus. Even here in the U.S., where about a third of the population is now fully vaccinated and help-wanted signs are popping up like spring flowers, a lackluster jobs report in April showed unemployment actually rising for the first time in a year, raising concerns about the pace of the economic recovery here. And with the outlook for the global economy also remaining rather murky, energy analysts are working to understand the likely trajectory of economic recovery in various countries and what we might now expect from energy demand and carbon emissions. Chief among these analysts are the ones working at the Paris-based International Energy Agency, or IEA. Representing the interests of 30 advanced economies of the OECD, the IEA has for 47 years gathered data and conducted analyses of the world's energy resources and offered guidance and scenarios on how the future demand and supply of energy might evolve globally. Over the past six months, the agency has issued three major reports on energy demand and emissions in light of COVID-19, in which they tallied up just how much energy demand dropped in 2020, how the fuel demand in various sectors and countries changed, and what the world might expect in 2021 and beyond. As is their custom, they have put forward several scenarios to bracket the possible trajectory of energy consumption and emissions, as well as a series of warnings calling on the world's nations to accelerate their energy transition efforts. In today's episode, it's our great privilege to welcome one of the leads of the IEA's modeling work to walk us through the findings of these reports. Tim Gould is co-head and principal author of the World Energy Outlook series at the IEA, where he designs and directs the work, along with the IEA's chief energy modeler. He also oversees the agency's analysis of energy investment and finance, including the World Energy Investment Series. Not only is he one of the world's foremost authorities on global energy modeling, he's also an Energy Transition Show subscriber, and he quickly agreed to my invitation to join us on the show. So I'm very pleased that Tim was willing to join us for this discussion and share his knowledge, which I think you will find interesting and at times surprising. Additionally, several weeks after we had completed work on this episode and had it ready to launch, on May 18th, the IEA released yet another report titled Net Zero by 2050, a Roadmap for the Global Energy Sector, in which they called for, quote, a total transformation of the energy systems that underpin our economies. The report sets out a blueprint for a net zero emissions economy using seven cases and other mitigation levers, and more than 400 global milestones for different sectors and technologies to guide the world towards net zero emissions. But what really generated headlines was their assertion that the world does not need any more fossil fuel supply after this year. No new oil and gas fields or coal mines or mine extensions, and no new coal-fired power plants without emissions abatement capability. 
But the agency says that the world does need an historic surge in clean energy investment to $4 trillion in 2030, which will create millions of jobs and help lift global economic growth by 0.4 percentage points a year in the 2020s. By 2040, they say, the power sector must reach zero emissions. I'm sorry that the timing of this episode didn't allow us to get into this new report, which Executive Director Fatih Barol called, quote, one of the most important reports in our agency's nearly 50-year history, and which got enough attention to briefly crash their website. But for those who are interested in exploring it further, just log into our website and see the show notes for this episode, where we have linked to the report, as well as to several excellent summaries of it by others. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll take a look at a new utility-scale solar project in California. We'll notch a new record for renewable power generation in the Golden State. We'll note the closure of a much-debated nuclear plant in the U.S. We'll have a peek at an ambitious plan to electrify a fleet of light aircraft. And we'll wrap it up with three items that update the saga of the February freeze in Texas, which we covered in episode 145. And now, our conversation with Tim Gould of the IEA, recorded April 27, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Tim, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a huge pleasure. All right. Well, today we're going to talk about what you and your colleagues at IEA have found about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on energy consumption and carbon emissions, and what you think is likely to happen to both as the world starts to get vaccinated and economies start to recover from the pandemic. So to start with, how much did energy demand drop in 2020? The pandemic had a huge impact on energy in 2020. So our latest data from IEA show a fall in worldwide energy demand last year of around 4%. 4% is the largest ever decline in absolute terms. We've seen nothing like it in percentage terms for more than 70 years. And I'm sure that many of your listeners will be familiar with the essentials of what happened to the various fuels. Um, lockdowns, the fall in transport activity hit oil particularly hard. Oil had its largest ever annual decline in consumption. That's almost 9%. And that's piling on the pressure on the oil and gas industry. Um, after oil came coal, a decline of around 4%. Coal was often the first to get squeezed out of the power mix because of lower electricity demand. Natural gas by around 2%, a fall partly related to electricity, but also because industrial use fell. And then on the other side of the ledger, in contrast to fossil fuels, all of which saw lower demand, renewables grew by 3%. Plenty of wind and solar capacity came online in 2020 that benefited from those very low marginal costs and indeed from priority market access in many countries. That really is interesting, and I guess it demonstrates the importance of policy support, doesn't it? So how did these declines in fossil fuel use affect emissions? Maybe we can just cast our minds back to before the pandemic in 2019. So the CO2 emissions coming from the energy sector, that was over 33 billion tons worldwide. And remember, we need to get that 33 billion tons down to zero. And in 2020, we estimate that it went down to about 31 and a half. That's a decline, 6%, some 2 billion tons. We've not seen anything like this before. That's a much larger fall than what we saw in 2009 after the global financial crisis. Maybe a word on methane as well, because that's another very important greenhouse gas and a major contributor to near-term warming. And it's also a gas that's released to the atmosphere because of oil, gas, and coal operations. So the data on methane are poor, they're getting better, but they're still much less reliable than those for CO2. 
We also reckon that energy-related methane emissions came down in 2020, but that's largely because fewer fossil fuels were being extracted. So two billion tonne fall in CO2 emissions last year, that was unprecedented. But let's just have in mind that we would need to see declines of more than one billion tonnes on average each year for the world to get to net zero by 2050. And we'll come back, I'm sure, to sort of some encouraging trends in renewable power and EVs. But we have to have in mind that the fall in 2020 emissions came mostly for the wrong reasons. So mostly because of confinements, mostly because of the economic slump. So 2020 is obviously not a great example to follow. And we need to replicate that kind of emissions outcome for all the right reasons in future. So mm. through a massive acceleration in the structural transformation of the energy sector. Yeah. And um, maybe one final reflection on the data for 2020. And it's a bit less encouraging because it relies on those monthly data that my colleagues here at IEA have been putting together under Laura Cotti, our chief energy modeler. When you put together the monthly picture, you see that that annualized 6% fall in CO2 emissions. It wasn't constant at all across the year. So you had a big decline in the spring when, I don't know, in April, CO2 emissions about 15% below the corresponding month in 2019. But by the end of the year, global emissions were 2% higher than they were in the same month a year earlier. So that's obviously a worrying trend in the monthly numbers. Yeah, and how are those rebounds in emissions distributed across different economies? I think, you know, the one that really stands out is China, because China is the only economy that actually saw higher emissions throughout the year. Already by April, year on year, Chinese emissions were above 2019. Wow. But by and large, in the US, they were almost back to 2019 levels by the end of the year. I mean, in India, that point came in September. In Brazil, also towards the end of the year. So it was a generalized trend. But clearly, the energy and emissions were closely tracking the various states of lockdown or getting back to normal in various countries. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a strong sort of cyclical element to all of this. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the big structural changes taking place in the sector. But, you know, those cyclical short-term things do come through strongly. And that correlation with confinement, that correlation with the trends in economic activity. But as you say, emissions reduced because of a lockdown is not sustainable and probably doesn't amount to what we would call an energy transition. It's just more of a, an event-driven kind of a fluke than an enduring kind of a trend. Well, let's take a closer look at a few of the sectors, starting with transport, since it was most affected of all. So the drop in road transport activity accounted for about 50% of the decline in global oil demand and the slump in the aviation sector for around 35%, yeah? Yeah, it's a really important sector to watch. Transport is more than half of oil demand. And in practice, it's a key reason why emissions fell in 2020. And here we have that real mix of those cyclical and structural factors that we just mentioned, the cyclical stuff that's liable to be reversed as economies pick up and the structural stuff that's with us for good. Um, maybe just looking at different aspects of transport demand, let's take passenger transport. So gasoline demand fell worldwide by around 3 million barrels a day in 2020. And in our view, it's just really unlikely to get back to where it was before the crisis. So in all probability, we've seen the peak in global gasoline use. Wow. Um, so when confinements are lifted, I mean, you see examples around the world, people do get back into their cars 
But the growth rate and the composition of the global car fleet is changing quite rapidly. And of course, EVs play a huge part in that. Um, the global auto industry had a miserable year in 2020, but the electric car market really bucked that wider trend with growth of over 40%. So in our view, EVs are very well set for a decade of strong expansion. But then, of course, you have to recognize that passenger transport is not the whole story. It's only about a quarter of total oil demand. And those structural elements are much slower when you start to look at commercial and heavy goods vehicles. So there, you're tracking much more closely the, the economic indicators. You mentioned aviation. Now, maybe a couple of words on that, because there's an interesting one. The demand for aviation fuel is likely to remain lower for longer than any other sector. Most of the reasons are more cyclical because of restrictions on travel or slower progress with vaccinations in some cases. But of course, there are big questions about whether the pandemic has changed travel patterns for good, especially for business travel. Yeah, it's fascinating to think, you know, how much we're going to rebound or who's going to start going back to conferences, you know, or getting back on planes every other week. That's still, I think, an open question. But this point you made about the composition of the road transport fleet already changing significantly enough to affect petroleum demand, certainly to affect gasoline demand, is so interesting to me. I mean, I would have not guessed, given that everything was locked down for so much of last year, that electric car sales would actually grow more than 40% over 2020. Over 3 million vehicles were sold, electric vehicles, which was, you know, probably, I think, fair to say was largely driven by policy support in the European Union and stimulus measures in China. But even so, you know, when I was looking at this question of, like there was some sell side research, for example, a couple of years ago where, you know, various banks were saying, well, we're going to calculate how much oil demand is going to be displaced by electric vehicles. And at that point, we were still at sort of 1% of vehicles sold being electric and, you know, less than 1% of the vehicles on the road. And I was very skeptical of those analyses because there's no way to track or to project how many of those electric vehicles would be sold or how much oil impact would it really have. I mean, you can certainly make a model, but it would be useless, right? So to see that we've actually gotten to that point already here in 2020, where we don't think gasoline demand is ever going to reach back to its 2019 peak is really kind of remarkable to me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One element to watch out for, though, is something that we've emphasized a lot in the work that we've done, which is the, the continued popularity among consumers of SUVs. Yeah. So a really striking data point from 2020 is that even amid the chaos, the crash in oil markets, SUVs consumed more oil in 2020 than in 2019. So that's pretty much the only part of the energy sector that saw emissions actually rising during the pandemic. So we need to keep a close eye on that segment, both in terms of its share of sales. So SUVs currently account for more than 40% of total car sales worldwide, but also in terms of you know, the fuel efficiency indicators and a progress with more electrified SUV models. That is interesting, and it's a great point. Because I'm an old fart, you're making me remember the 1980s now where we had a very strong effort to produce smaller cars. You know, Detroit was trying to sell smaller cars to the American public that were more fuel efficient because at various points in the 70s and the 80s, gasoline was relatively expensive. I'd have to run the numbers, but I think in today's terms, it would be sort of on the order of like, 
six or seven dollars a gallon. Mm -hmm. And that was enough to persuade people to try to choose a smaller, more fuel efficient vehicle. It was something they really cared about. I think part of the SUV craze that we've seen for the past, whatever it's been, 20 years or so, is really driven by the fact that gasoline has been too cheap, even with the whole spike in 2008. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And you can also see a preference for those kinds of larger models coming through in economies like India, which have traditionally been the sort of home of much smaller cars. Right. And, you know, that's definitely one to watch because as with so many trends in energy today, where India goes will determine a lot of where the global numbers go. So in emerging economies, then, the recovery of road transport activity in the second half of 2020 really was one of the principal drivers of their rebound in emissions. Yeah, I think that certainly played a role. Also, this sort of recovery in electricity demand was very important as well, because that started to bring some of the more emissions-intensive sources of power back into the mix. Right. Well, let's talk about the power sector then. So what did we see happen there? I think we're all aware the power sector is the area where structural changes have been moving very quickly. But let's just make sure we understand the starting point. Electricity generation, still the largest source of energy-related CO2 emissions worldwide. So 2019, 33 billion tons of CO2. So more than 40% of that came from electricity generation. Hmm. And the largest single source of global emissions, about 10 billion tons, is still coal-fired power. So there's lots to do. But indeed, some of the trends are pointing in a positive direction. The key global metric to watch, in my view, is whether the growth in generation from renewables and nuclear is covering the growth in global electricity demand. So if those two sources are producing more in a given year than the growth in electricity demand, then that's obviously a very good indication that we're decarbonizing the power system. Um, If it's not covering growth, then emissions from global power might still be increasing, but that really depends on whether gas is replacing coal elsewhere in the system. So what happened in 2020? First thing, no growth in electricity demand. Quite the opposite. You had a decline in global consumption of around 1%. And that was accompanied by record growth in renewables led by wind and solar. So the result, big jump in the share of renewables in total generation, up to sort of 29% in 2020. And of course, a consequent big squeeze on generation from non-renewable sources that pushed down emissions from the power sector by more than 3%. You know, that's interesting that you point out that the power sector globally is still the largest source of CO2 emissions because it's sort of easy to forget from our perspective here in the U.S., and maybe it's also true in Europe, that the power sector is no longer the sector producing the most emissions in the U.S. It's now the transportation sector because of many decades of sustained effort on energy transition to phase out coal plants and that kind of thing. But from a global perspective, that's not really the case. Yeah, there's still plenty of work to be done on the global power sector, and then particularly in those systems that remain very carbon intensive. And I'm thinking particularly about developing economies in Asia. Right. And again, as you say, because renewables growth was so strong in 2020, half of the credit for reducing power sector emissions in 2020 relative to 2019 owed to renewables expansion. So that's a very positive indicator. So let's take a look at sort of different countries here and how they performed. What sort of differences do you see in the way that the pandemic affected various countries? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that although vaccination is going well in some countries, including the United States, including my country, the United Kingdom, you know, this is far from over. Just look at the 
absolutely the horrendous situation in India right now. Yeah. But I'll just focus on the data from 2020. And one way to tell some of these country-by-country country stories is to focus on emissions. So overall, wherever you started from in 2019, the rule of thumb is that you probably saw a decline of 5 to 10 percentage points in 2020 in the emissions trend. So in most advanced economies in Europe, United States, Japan, emissions were already falling. So 2020 saw an average drop of almost 10%. And let's be fair, this was related not only to the pandemic, but there was also some milder than usual weather that reduced the need for winter heating. By contrast, in most developing economies, they were on a rising trend before the pandemic for emissions because their economies have simply been growing more rapidly. And because the starting point was higher, the headline reduction was less. So emissions in general fell by around 4% compared with the previous year. And there's one big outlier here, and I mentioned it already, one major economy that actually posted an increase in CO2 emissions in 2020, and that was China. Mm -hmm. um, China's very interesting. Um, the reasons why, essentially because China was the first major economy to emerge from the pandemic and lift restrictions, and it was also because of policy choices. I mean, I've listened to experts talking on your show. Laurie Levita was pointing out that China has continued to invest heavily in renewables, and the data show that it's also using some pretty traditional levers to push its recovery. Yeah. So more construction, more cement, more steel, and that meant higher emissions. Right. But let's be clear, although China was a bit of an outlier, you do see some similar patterns in other parts of the world as well. So there was an important element here in the milder than usual weather, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm dealing mostly with sort of long-term energy analysis, but the short-term indicators can be changed dramatically by weather patterns, by different hydro years. But I think it's also fair to say that as the world warms, that starts to have also significant implications for energy use around the world in terms of the heat, but also particularly in terms of the amount of energy we're using for cooling. And that's going to be a massive growth area for electricity demand. And it's a real risk point for some developing economies because, you know, if you start getting really high levels of air conditioner use in a country like India, that has potentially very, very strong implications for your peak electricity demand. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the things I was thinking about when I looked at this this observation that IEA has made, that the main reason why global CO2 emissions were lower in 2020 than 2019 was milder than usual weather because it reduced the need for heating, especially in the advanced economies of the global north. But it also has this flip side effect. As you say, it's going to mean more air conditioning demand in the summer. But it also has all sorts of effects on the energy sector, especially power generation. When solar panels get hot, they derate, they become less mm -hmm. productive. And when thermal power plants, you know, coal, nuclear, natural gas fired power plants, when they're operating at higher temperatures, basically they have to consume more fuel to put out the same amount of energy. Yeah. So their emissions go up as temperatures go up just to produce the same amount of electricity. Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting exercise that you can do is to sort of map the location of some of the world's power stations against areas of water stress as well. Yeah. Uh, because you've seen numerous examples in recent years of curtailed operations because of water availability. We did some analysis on India earlier this year when we were sort of plotting the location of very water-intensive 
sort of coal-fired power plants against areas of water stress. And there's a big problem there for the operation of those plants in the future. And that's not going to get any easier. Indeed, there is. And here in the U.S. and around the world for about a decade now, whenever we've gotten these big heat waves, it's frequently forced nuclear plants and coal-fired power plants to actually shut down because the intake water that they were relying on to cool the plant was too warm. It was above specification and they couldn't operate the plant. So we've got all sorts of issues like that as well. All right. Well, IEA has put a lot of emphasis on sustainable recoveries, but what about the world's governments? Are they really putting clean energy into their recovery strategies deliberately? There's individual countries and regions that have done more, but the short answer to your question is really, it's not yet. At the IEA, we've been urging governments to put sustainability at the heart of their recovery strategy since very early on in this crisis. Yeah. Um, to us, this just seemed like a unique moment to help jolt the energy system onto a new set of rails. And we did some analysis in cooperation with IMF on what this would take, focusing on those clean energy investments that would help to get economies moving again while also reducing emissions. And we came up with a figure of how much additional spending would be required. And that's among other policy and regulatory changes. But the spending was about an additional $1 trillion per year for three years, 2021 to 2023, to get us on track for the Paris Agreement. So not all of that would need to come from governments. But as ever, public funds play a very important sort of catalytic role for getting the private investment moving. Um, so we looked at different recovery packages to see what's going where. Um, Basically, with around one quarter of what we argued would be necessary is actually coming through. Oh, wow. So, you know, there's still plenty more that could be done to align these recovery strategies with the imperative to tackle climate change. I mean, I can sort of understand why we wouldn't be making as much investment in those new renewable sources as you believe is necessary, just given all the disruption of the past year. A lot of budgets were just locked up while we're kind of waiting to see how great the damage will be. And from a policy perspective, I think the U.S. and most other countries have been more focused on relief and stimulus funding than anything else, which makes perfect sense. I think that's right. And we certainly recognize that that short-term support is geared towards households and companies to help them get through the crisis. So if you add up all of the fiscal measures that have been mobilized by governments around the world in response to the pandemic, that's around $16 trillion in total. And that's our current number. But there's around $2 trillion that's focused on economic recovery, so on longer-term issues. And that's where we're looking for the support for clean energy-related investments and infrastructure. Well, you know, I like your earlier phrasing of, you know, sort of jolting the world to a different energy regime, because I do see, at least here in the U.S., real support for that. I mean, obviously, a lot of that owes to the fact that we now have the Biden administration that's made climate change action and energy transition a core focus of their leadership. But I think also just sort of across various industries, there's a recognition that energy transition is no longer something that can be delayed. It's not optional. It's not something that anybody has a choice about whether or not they're going to respond to it. Like we all have to do something. And I think that recognition has set in. And I think that the pandemic effects of 2020 did have a real impact on the way people think about energy and just sort of global attitudes toward energy transition. So even though the 
actual funding amounts might not be yet at the level that IEA thinks they need to be. I think the mentality has changed in that direction of that jolt you referred to. Yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence to support that. But let's just have in mind, though, that that scope for mobilizing fiscal support, that's not spread evenly around the world. Yeah. Um, so richer countries can do it, but there's a hugely challenging situation in many developing economies which have very significant investment needs, but finances have been hit hard by the pandemic. And in our view, that's a mismatch. That's one of the key fault lines in global energy transitions. And it's an issue we're focusing on a lot at IEA. Well, IEA just released another report, the Global Energy Review 2021, which updates the agency's outlook for energy and emissions in light of the economic impact of COVID-19. So can you summarize those findings for us? Like, will a rebound in activity in major economies that have achieved widespread vaccination push CO2 emissions to a new high in 2021? Or will new policies targeting a sustainable recovery sort of curb a rebound in emissions? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A major solar project located on Federal Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, land in the California desert has been given the go-ahead, highlighting both the solar potential in the area and the difficulty of building utility-scale solar projects. Originally proposed in 2016 and begun in 2017, on a site where BrightSource Energy had proposed to build a solar tower project in 2009, the Crimson Solar Project finally received approval from BLM in May to build a 350-megawatt solar PV array with a 350-megawatt energy storage system and ancillary support facilities, including a high-voltage transmission line outside of a designated utility corridor. The $550 million project will provide enough power for approximately 88,000 homes and will be owned by Sonoran West Solar Holdings, LLC, a wholly-owned subsidiary of Recurrent Energy, LLC, a subsidiary of Canadian Solar. 
The facility will occupy approximately 2,000 acres of BLM-administered lands designated for solar development, approximately 13 miles west of Blythe in Riverside County, California. Item 2. For a fleeting moment on April 24th, just four seconds to be precise, the main bulk power grid in California, the California ISO, or CAISO, was 95% powered by renewables. Solar and wind farms provided most of the renewable power, while geothermal, biomass, and hydropower facilities provided. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>